Welcome to the Weekend Silver with Kim and Ketsia. I'm Kim. I'm Ketsia. As moms in our early 40s, we each struggled with alcohol for the majority of our adult lives. We both stopped drinking at about the same time in November of 2020. We didn't know each other back then, but we eventually met through the sober Instagram community. On our podcast, we talk about how our lives have healed due to the growth we've experienced in sobriety. We share stories of motherhood, marriage, and friendship, and chat all about life without alcohol. We also enjoy talking with a variety of guests about their experiences with getting sober. We're so glad you're here. This week on the podcast, Ketia and I welcome Dr. Evelyn Higgins from Wired for Addiction. She is a certified addictionologist and a recognized international expert in the epidemiology of addiction. Dr. Higgins shares with us how new research suggests that addiction is a biological condition. Um, and we talk about how knowing your risk for alcohol and drug dependency um, might impact your choices. So it's a really great conversation. Everyone should listen to this. It's fascinating stuff. Well, thank you for being here. Um, Dr. Higgins, why don't you introduce yourself so our listeners can get a sense of, yeah, you, you've you done a lot. You're very accomplished. Right now, you said you're at a conference. So tell us a little bit about you. Sure. I am the CEO of Wired for Addiction and now called Wired BioHealth. Um, 35 years in practice and kind of how I got involved in what we're doing now and the technology that we use was both professional as well as personal. Um, I started out in the area of pain management. As I said, 35 years ago, I was practicing in a rural area. The method was try this, try that approach. If it doesn't work, we'll double it. We'll double it again. We'll half it. We'll have you try something else. Just this throwing a dart, hoping we land someplace close. I'm seeing people somewhat become somewhat dependent, and that's 35 years ago. 20 years after that, I'm in an urban area. I said, okay, you know, maybe we're going to be doing things differently uh, with more scientific validation. Well, that was not the fact. It was the same thing. Try this, try that, double it, half it, and nothing had changed, you know. And personally, I married a man who was an alcoholic. Um, In reality, probably had several addictions. We had a child together a year after she is born. I learned that, or we learned, that he's adopted. And we knew nothing of his family history, his health history at all. So now, in, in when I was practicing in the rural area, I started um, adding a lot of tools in my toolbox, certified addiction professional, because there were no resources at all. So I was already going down that road. Now, personally, I'm in this world and I'm seeing the behavior and I'm like, what do I need to know for my child? Is there, are there genetic links here? Is there something we need to learn? And what came about, guys, was that I was really well aware that we didn't use technology to advance this area of healthcare at all. And, you know, we say we, there's no stigma. There certainly still is a stigma. You know, and it's that you got yourself here. You can get yourself out. We're not going to put resources into this to try to figure things out. And the fact is, it's, you know, it's just like any other part of healthcare, but it's not treated that way. 
So 16 years ago, almost 17 years now, now we started the R&D to do what we do at Wired BioHealth and Wired for Addiction, which was use technology to advance this area of healthcare. So we look at someone's genetic predisposition. We look at genes that we now know with the whole study of epigenetics, we can upregulate, downregulate, turn our genes on, turn our genes off to use this science to help people in this area of health. And we, we just weren't using it. We were still treating people like it was 1950, like it was 1970, like that, you know, get over it. Someone, someone doesn't wind up with an addiction one day. It's like any part of your health, right? You're healthy one here, you're sick here. You're healthy here, you're addicted here. It's all the living that goes on in between that brings us to either end of that spectrum. We're seeing the mental health components, but we're not dealing with them. We're kind of just shoving them under the rug. Or, you know, I say addiction winds up for one, two, or all three of these. A condition not being treated properly, an undiagnosed condition, or a trauma, or one, two, or all three of those. And we're not looking at the healthcare part of it, the mental health, until we get to the addiction. And it's not just one day, it's every day that we get closer to either side of that. So we see, you know, anytime we're working with someone who has an addiction, it always starts as self-medicating. Whether you know what you're self-medicating for or not, you just know when I do this, I feel better. And initially it's great. You think you found it, but it works until it doesn't work. And then it becomes our next problem. But it's always this self-medicating, be it anxiety, be it depression, OCD, ADD, ADHD. And whether it's a processed addiction or a substance addiction doesn't really matter. It's that self-medicating. And when you came across that in your life, that initially was your, oh, I found it, the holy grail. And it's whatever that activity was that becomes your, your go-to. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you just explained, I mean, so much. For me, you just explained my whole story, basically. Um, But I would love to back up and, um, yeah, focus on a couple different things. Can you explain what, um, like, the part about the epigenetics? I I, Maybe our listeners would like to know a little bit about that. And and I remember reading about that early on and being like, wow. And then you talk about the self-medicating and get into that too. Okay. Okay. It's probably the most exciting part of science that's going on today. I believe it is because it allows you to take the power back. First off, you're understanding what's happening and then wait, I don't have to stay in this state forever. There's things that I can do. So what we do in the, the genetic part of things is look at something called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. All that means a polymorphism is an error in the genetic coding. So we identify that and we say, okay, what do we need to do to turn that gene on, turn that gene off, whatever it is we're looking at. And if we don't isolate and and identify where that is, we're just guessing. So we now know, we you're born with your DNA, right? We always knew that. We got that part. Here's your cards, play them out. But we can change the expression of our DNA. So let me give an example. Somebody's 
21 years old and all of a sudden mom comes to us and say, hey, I see a totally different kid in my daughter. Like all of a sudden, all these things are going on. Never saw that behavior before. How can this be? Classic example of epigenetics. So the DNA, it was always there, but it didn't show itself because she didn't have the same stressors in her life. Her environment then changed at 21. Well, what's going on in your daughter's life? Well, she went to college. She's making decisions for the first time. She's, she's got the stress of school. She's trying to do a part-time job. Well, is she actually sleeping or is she hanging out with all her buddies and never going to sleep? You know, it's like all these different parts that change the expression of what we had in our DNA it was always there. We just never saw it. And, and that gives the power back. You know, that's like, gosh, okay, it's there. Boom. All right, let's be, you know, we talk about like, hey, you know, we have cancer in our family. I want you to know that because as you start, you know, developing your habits in your life, you should know that that's in our family. Say there's cardiovascular disease in our family. As you're developing your habits through your life, I want you to know that. We should be having the same exact conversation for mental health and addiction. Hey, this is in our family. I want you to know that when you start making your decisions, always realize that. And that also supports this um, belief that the individual is not inherently bad or they're not inherently Correct. flawed or broken Correct. or that this is how they're going to be from here till forever. Um, Absolutely. So I, I really like that because I think a lot of people come into um, recovery believing that there's something wrong with them. And, mm -hmm. you know, so having an understanding of um, the epigenetic side of it, I think would be really helpful for a lot of people. Absolutely. I did a Ted talk and I say, you know, addiction is not a moral flaw. We have to get over that and we have to start looking at it like any other part of healthcare, or any other disease, you know, the, the work that we do, um, like example, one of the sets of genes that we look at was only figured out in 2017 a Japanese physician won the Nobel Prize for, for figuring out the cellular interaction of one category of what we look at. So that's how new this stuff is. The technology to actually measure only came available in 2017. So this is really new information. And, and more and more, thankfully, like um, NIH, World Health Organization, NIDA, that did a, a, a study of over a million people linking these polymorphisms to addictions. And it's, this is the power of information, but it has to go a step further than talking about it. It has to take the doing step or else it's kind of useless. You can have a conversation about it, but okay, what are we gonna do? We don't wanna just sit here and say, well, we nailed it, this is what's happening. What are we going to do about it? And that's that whole epigenetic part. We look at someone's samples and we do what's called a biomarker evaluation report, a 31-page report going over each one of those um, particular neurotransmitters, hormones, and polymorphisms that we looked at, and then look at the biochemical pathways of each one of those and say, where do we have a problem? How, how come we're not getting to the end step as we should? Where do we need to support? And to what level do we need so, to support? And then I wow. think, Kim, Kim, you said to go back and talk about the self-medicating aspects of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is so important. That's really why somebody winds up with an addiction, not even knowing that's what 
the end result is going to be, let's face it, nobody wakes up one day, hey, can't wait to lose my friends, my family, my job, you know, my everything. That's not how this works. It's one little day at a time that we're getting closer and closer to it. And it starts out typically anxiety and depression, right? Mm -hmm. I don't feel well. And you don't really know how, what does that mean? You just know you're not right. You know, I just don't feel like everything is the way it should be. Whatever your substance is, say it's alcohol, you have a drink and you're like, whoa, does that anxiety feel different right now? I feel calm. We're changing the neurotransmitter balance. That's why you feel that calmness, right? So alcohol stimulates GABA release, GABAaminobutyric acid, right? That, but then that constant supply of alcohol makes the brain adapt and reduces our GABA receptors. So that's why initially it's like, oh, bingo, this is good. But then, whoa, everybody in that state, wherever you are, it's this. It's alcohol does anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression. You're going to feel more anxious the more you drink. And then after it, you're going to be depressed. So then you drink again to say, hey, I want to feel better. And then you're just on that roller coaster. And I... You know, I started drinking at a very young age and um, I think I had, you know, social anxiety. I didn't know it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was 14 and, you know, drinking to, to black out every weekend until I, you know, through adulthood and drinking like that through college. Um, you know, I started college at the age of 17. Like I was young, wow. drinking heavily um, and drinking a lot. Um I found so much comfort in alcohol and, um, you know, you mentioned that people drink because of traumas and people, there's so many, there's a variety of reasons. Um, I, you know, I, I hit all of those. Like I was drinking because I was anxious and then, you know, it, it becomes like it's the chicken or the egg. Like was, I drinking because I had anxiety or was it because the alcohol was making me anxious, you know, and, and it, um, eventually caused me to experience some terrible traumas in college, you know, sexual assault. And it's like, it's all intertwined. And, um, and then I was drinking because uh, to forget about things that happened to me, um, to avoid dealing with problems in my life. My parents are going through a divorce, you know, so there was just so many, and I write about this in my book. I'm in, so people know about all of these things that happened to me. This isn't news to many of our listeners, but, um, this, you, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head with all of this. Like, this is exactly what, um, so many people that I've spoken to have experienced, um, that, that, debilitating anxiety when you wake up in the morning, anxiety, and yeah. only to say, I'm never going to drink again. But then yeah. it wears off, mm -hmm. right? The hangover, yep. you know, you get over your hangover. So what happens to the brain? What happens inside your body chemically? What is going on on a, you know, I'm curious to hear, like, I know I've read about it and what I would love to hear from you, like, what is going on? Why do we do that to ourselves? Like, what is happening? Like, I just feel like it's, in, it's almost like insanity, you know, when you just keep getting back on the hamster wheel, you know, and doing that to yourself. Right. So it's whatever is going on with that individual. Let's use the example of anxiety, social anxiety, which is very common. Why someone starts drinking before a social event. 
and that just becomes the life after that, you know, more and more and more of it, but you're anxious. So we look at those neurotransmitters. Is it serotonin? Is it dopamine? Is it epinephrine? Is it norepinephrine? Is it phenylethylalanine? And the list goes on and on. We don't know unless we measure. And the crazy part about what's going on is that we are still diagnosing people based on vocabulary instead of looking at labs. So what if my definition isn't the same of yours to have the, the, the doctor say, okay, what we're talking about is anxiety. What if I don't say it the exact same way you do? It, it's insane. I mean, you used the word insane before. I'm like, what we're doing is insanity because it's, it's my guys, you know, it's 2023, almost 2024. And we're still doing things like it's the dark ages. I mean, I think there'll come a time when we're like, I cannot believe people bought into that. Like, tell me how you feel and I'll give you something. You know, what if you're just making it all up? I mean, yeah. it's, it's unbelievable. So it's, starting out with those labs so we know objectively what neurotransmitters are less than optimal. So that's our starting place. And then we look at hormones from stress hormones to our androgens, our sex hormones, and how those interact with those brain chemicals. And then we look at the, the genetic portion of things. But without doing that, we are throwing a dart, hoping we land someplace close. You know, pre, pre-COVID, numbers were pretty high of diagnosed. One in four people is diagnosed with their anxiety, depression, diagnosed. Okay. So that means the number is a lot greater than that, right? People just running around like, I'll take care of it when I go home tonight and do a few of these or whatever your, 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 your thing is. Post COVID, the numbers just came out from the Kaiser study. 53% of the population is diagnosed with anxiety or depression. That's unbelievable because we know we're closer to 80 plus percent if that's what's diagnosed. And, you know, I, honest, you know, being out in public, it's pretty evident because people are, you know, not that kind to each other. And it's all because of that, that anxiety, that depression and the way we interact. But that's staggering. Stag yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's also like how long people have been living with those conditions too. So right. Uh, Kim and I both got sober just before we turned 40 or like the year before or whatever. Yeah. And for many, many years, I drank over my undiagnosed um, like OCD, ADHD. Yeah. I was struggling to hold down a job. I was struggling to find a place of belonging, a place to fit in. And drinking became my way to cope with it. It didn't start out that way, but it sure. became that. And and so I didn't even realize that I had any of those conditions. I didn't have access to therapy for a long time. I didn't have good healthcare coverage. I was a single parent for many years. You know, all these things compounded. And like you said, there's people walking around in society with all of their, you know, um, isms, I guess, just stacked one on top of the other. And there's no baseline and no standard like what you're talking about right. to say, okay, do this intake, do this eval report, and we can start from there and then go, you know, build from that. And I think if people had something like that, you know, maybe there would be a shift, but it still would be a long time before that ever happened, you know? Sure. I mean, even when you're, you're talking about example, someone says, well, I take an SSRI because I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the amount of times people, their serotonin is in the tank and they've been yeah. on an SSRI for decades. First off, 
they were never meant for someone to live on long term. Mm -hmm. They were meant for acute situations. So that's going to be our whole next, like what happens when somebody's been on these for decades? You know, how does that, you know, your liver, your kidneys, your bladder, everything that has to process it. But so that's the first thing. It's like, okay, you've been on an SSRI. That didn't work for you. Your serotonin's in the tank. We take such a deep dive into everything that we even look at genetic um, SNPs to see if an SSRI would be effective for you. Mm-hmm. Because what does it do with somebody, let's say, who's been on an SSRI for 20 years and never got better? They're told it's all them, right? right. It's on you. Like, you just don't want to be better. I can't help you. You know, this is what works and you're just right. not cooperating. Lost cause. But that's not the case at all. Yeah. But then that affects their mental health and then they start feeling like they are and believing that they are I lost bother. cause. Right. Why bother? Right. Right. Exactly. What does that do you're to someone emotional? Right. When you're told that you're the problem and no one's willing to work with you to try to understand, um, maybe this isn't the solution. And you mentioned SSRIs. I was in and out of ERs and in and out of doctor's offices. I was given all sorts of things and mixing them with the dangerous cocktail of alcohol, of course, behind closed doors because, you know, I didn't know how else to cope and I didn't realize the dangers of it either. That was another area mm-hmm. where I didn't know that mixing those type of medication with alcohol could be fatal. Right. You know, so, you know, there's a lot of people who slip through the cracks that way because they really get down on themselves. You're already dealing with someone who has a mental health condition right. and then you make them believe that they're the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You lose hope. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's just so many advances that we've been able to make with the work that we do. And you know, the biggest thing is getting people to understand that this is available, right? Because so many, I mean, physicians aren't even aware unless they come across a client, a patient that we have that they're now working with. They're like, wow, I had no idea that was available. We work with treatment centers. We work with people that are incarcerated. We work with um, individuals that come directly to us or referrals from a therapist or a coach. But, you know, I I use the example, um, people in the criminal justice system, judges love this because it allows them, they'll tell us, like it allows us to make a decision based on data instead of an opinion. Yeah. And that is great for them. Yeah. That's like physical evidence. Exactly. Exactly. So why aren't healthcare professionals, doctors, you know, PCPs, why aren't people aware that this is available? Is not covered by insurance? Um, it's brand new. Um, yeah. We actually had, you know, so it takes time. It takes time yeah. for people to learn how to think a new way. Yeah. You know, it, it seems ridiculous to say, okay, you were diagnosed depressed because you came in and said, hey, I don't feel good. It, that to me is what's crazy, right? But they don't know that this is aware yet. Uh, is available yet. Um, as people become more aware, it starts moving along. We had the nation's actually largest insurer from out West come to us, which is huge. We didn't go to them. They heard what we were doing, came to us and said, we want to do a pilot because we know the efficacy of what you guys are doing and we want to show it. So then we can get it covered under our insurance. And then if they do it, so will all the other insurances follow. I mean, I hope that one day we'll see this like a you go into your doctor for your yearly physical and you have a CBC, right? A complete blood count, red blood cells, white blood cells. 
that this is really the same, that you have a baseline of someone's mental health and that's looked at the same exact way. So we can alleviate so many problems, so much suffering. If from the beginning we say, okay, let's figure out what's actually going on. Oh my gosh, that just sounds like the dream. I think about my children, you know, my daughter's turning nine and my son is a newborn, but I just think like maybe there is hope for them that they don't have to suffer the way that people like Kim and I did where drinking was agony. It became this huge secret and this huge, um, you know, thorn in our side beyond that even. And I just think like how much different my life might've been if I had gone to the doctor and been given, you know, that type of opportunity um, to understand myself and to not, and to not feel like there's something wrong with you, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had mentioned I did a Ted talk and that's what I wrap it around. What if Mm. in your youth, you knew this information? Would you make different choices knowing that? Would you love yourself? Would you accept yourself and other people and have an understanding and compassion? Like you said, there's people so unkind to one another. Maybe that would be different. I think that it's just what is hard still is this stigma that, um, you know, it's reducing the stigma. I, I, you know, so I say, like, I look at my 12 year old son who has ADHD. He's super impulsive kid. He's in seventh grade. He was just saying before this call started that I got a voicemail from the principal um, about he, you know, broke the exit sign by jumping up and smacking it, you know, walking down the hallway. So I have to deal with that after this. But, you know, so he he is a very active, impulsive child. And, you know, I, I read about the fact that he is my child. He has ADHD. He's likely you know, because of his impulsivity and his brain chemical makeup, you know, more susceptible to developing alcohol use disorder as an adult later in life, um, which terrifies me. And I worry, I just see the, you know, he's a risk, a risk taker. He does not think before he acts, he does things um, he's broken many bones. He just does things without thinking. And I worry, you know, so, you know, and they, I've read about how he has um, lower levels of, what is it? Dopamine. <laughs> I, yep. I'm going to get this wrong. Is it the dopamine? Like, and he just, yep. uh, so it's, impulse. Um, yep. yeah. And it's, it's, he's just prime for <laughs> developing yep. a problem and it scares me. So there are, you know, warning like there's an understanding already for some children more than there was when we were kids you know there's that we have those red flags but um yeah but there's that there's still such a stigma um around all of this you know even around kids with ADHD oh you know like he's he's got a problem oh he's a troublemaker and that's what's upsetting and it's hard to wrap my head around yeah, we want to make believe there's not a stigma. There, there is. And that's right. why, you know, making this science instead of name calling is what makes sense, right? So, you know, we know with the polymorphisms, they create what we call aberrant behavior. What's aberrant behavior? Risk-taking, impulse control, addiction, anxiety, depression. But know that we don't have to stay in that. 
with the whole study of epigenetics now, we know that those things can change, but we have to start by correctly identifying them, right? So unless we're doing objective data with labs, we're just name calling, taking a shot in the dark, let's see if this works. Kind of what I said, you know, 35 years ago is going on. Um, it hasn't changed. The stigma hasn't changed and the way we treat the situation hasn't changed. When science has evolved, we now have this knowledge, yet we sit there and choose not to use it is absolutely criminal. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's just so, there's so much wrapped into it. Um, but you said something there um, about starting with our youth and with our children and at that level. And I truly believe that that is where we should be starting when it comes to addictions and it comes to the type of, um, you know, stuff that we're talking about, because as much as we, as much as some people want others to believe, or maybe they label other people as saying like, this is something that happened later in life. Well, actually it, it isn't, you know, it started with something and it started with that mental, mental, um, you know, illness of some sort. So yeah, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm like Kim, I'm kind of like excited, but cautious, but you know, also just the information I I'm reading just started reading this book called The Biology of Desire, and it talks about these very things. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but um, he's a neuroscientist, but also a former addict, and he breaks this down why this model of um, addiction as a disease is quite harmful. And, you know, that's not really what we're debating today, obviously. And I know there's probably people listening to the show that do believe that, and and that works for them. But um, I think it is really interesting to explore this science side of it as well, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah that just touching on that where people debate addiction uh, as as a disease, it's, you know, it, it, it boils down to how they're defining the cell, you know? So mm -hmm. that, that's just, it's so like, you know, guys, like, let's just stop, <laughs> like, the debate and actually do something because the right. debate doesn't help us, you know, like, let's whatever you want to believe it to be because you, you know, you, your definition of the cell is this, whatever, but it, it remains the same that we have to identify these brain chemicals. We have to identify these polymorphisms. And then once we do not sit in that, but say, okay, what's our action step? Mm -hmm. How are we going to change this situation? And that's where the power is knowing that it can be changed. That's huge. You know, when the earlier you do it in someone's life, that habit forming can be so different because the, our habits get us where we wind up too. But, you know, we're going like, what's the step before that? It's the science step. And then that's creating the habit stuff. So if, if when we're young, we identify this, we make the changes, we're not going to start with those negative habits. So it's, it's not, let's break this and let's break that. It's the, the, the complexity of addiction is what it is because there's so much to it, right? There's a biological piece, a physiological piece, which what we're talking about here. There's the psychosocial piece of it, right? So if we, in someone's early in their life, intervene with that, we're probably going to change the psychosocial part of things. You're probably going to hang out with different kids. You're probably going to have different habits if we make the changes early. Yeah, it's incredible. 
Wow, there's just so much to that. And I was just thinking too, um, was the catalyst for you getting into this work, going back to like what you had said about, you know, your husband and everything that happened with that? Yeah. Did that, did, did your personal life kind of evolve alongside the work that you were doing in a way? Absolutely. Because in my, my professional career, I was already seeing where we're falling short. Mm -hmm. But when the personal part of it came in, I was like, okay, let me learn a lot more about the science of this. Cause I'm going to need to know this now. I'm going to need to know it. Just not like I want to do this in my work, but I personally am going to need to know what's yeah. the best way to handle situations that are I going think, to pop up. I think that all of us, we can't be more than a few d- degrees away from somebody who suffers from addiction and who has suffers from <laughs> depression or anxiety. So this is an everybody problem. This is not just a totally. pass it to the totally. next person. That mentality is, is what's so harmful in our, in our, you know, recovery space as well, because it's always just, you know, there's a lot of people whose families just kick them to the curb. And, you know, I think it's all of us. We all have a vested interest in. Absolutely. You know, just what I gave with the 53% stat of anxiety and depression diagnosed saying we're we're more like 80% when we look at the undiagnosed part in that. How does society function as a result? We're looking at it right now. Right. Society's nuts, wherever you are in the globe right? It's because people are hurting. And and we're just kind of, well, yeah, well, what are we going to do about it? Action. What's the action step going to be? So we all lose or we all win conversely, you know, if we say we've got to do something here. Yeah, this is incredible. Thank you. This is... You're welcome. I need to watch the TED Talk, I just thought to myself. And uh, I feel like this is like an ongoing conversation because sometimes we have people come on the show or people that contact us reach out to us that have unique situations that I sometimes think to myself okay I don't really know how to best approach or best talk to this person about it not from a uh, like diagnosis perspective but more just from like an understanding perspective so I feel like there's going to be things that come up and I'm sure, like you said, this is so such new work as well, that there's just so many permutations of um, different scenarios for different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's what, like we were saying, like what gets the person to that place of addiction, you know, what was the underlying pinnings that were going on? So there are so many variables and, and, but the point is to know that you don't have to sit in that that's the part that's beautiful. You know, let's use this technology to advance science and advance where we are as people. Wow. Yeah. We'll have to have you back and keep us updated on On the work. Yeah. Yeah, All the work. Absolutely. Um, And thanks to you guys, because having these kind of conversations of what you're doing does help reduce the stigma because it's just an open conversation and talking about it factually, just as much as we talk about any other part of healthcare, like I said, like cancer, Mm -hmm. like heart disease, factually have that same conversation. So thank you for the work that you do. It's nice to see women in this space like us, all of us doing this, because I think when I first started sharing on social media, 
I remember thinking, oh, what are my parents going to think and this and that. And now, you know, my mom is one of my biggest supporters and <laughs> all over my social media and stuff. So I think, you know, talking about this, it's hard for some people and not everyone does it the way that we do, but we have the platform too. And I'm happy to share more than happy to share this um, information with people. So we really appreciate your time. And Absolutely. Your Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if you wanted to check out the TED talk, it's understanding yeah. the biomarkers of addiction. And okay. then my name, Evelyn Higgins. And yeah, I mean, your listeners can go to our website, Wired for Addiction or Wired Biohealth. We've um, kind of grown into Wired Biohealth because people are like, well, I'm not quite addicted yet, but the mental health part definitely resonates. You know, is there some way mm -hmm. that you can help me? Absolutely. So people are starting to understand how it all, you don't just wind up there, boom, I don't know how I got here. It's all these pieces, but understanding that gives your listeners the power back. Right. Yeah. I'll include that, all of that information um, in the show notes. So yeah. Cool, well, cool, cool. Good work, ladies. Thank you so much, Dr. Higgins. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Enjoy Thanks. the rest of your day. All right. Thank you too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.